Today's episode is brought to you by Dreammaker Racing, the New York bred specialist. From top quality New York bred racehorses, Hall of Fame trainers, and unmatched hospitality services, Dreammaker Racing has everything to offer when it comes to owning a racehorse. Have you ever imagined what it's like to see your horse cross the finish line first at racetracks like Saratoga or Belmont? Well, now you can. Dreammaker Racing will put you in the winner's circle. Call today at 518 518- 587-5550 or visit DreamMakerRacing.com and let us make your dreams come true today. pal welcome to another episode of the peach and stew podcast i'm stew filling in for peach today um wow thank you for coming back we we've had a really wild couple weeks uh, a lot of new listeners a lot of uh a lot of exciting interviews we've got to do and uh first and foremost thank you uh because you know, if we're just doing it for each other, it's not uh, it's not a big thing. But me and Peach are, are excited to be sharing ideas, um, thoughts, uh, predictions with with you guys, and um, hope to keep doing that. Uh, check us out wherever you listen to this podcast. Uh, check us out, rate, like, subscribe, review, um, any of those. We listen to the reviews. We care about what you think. We do want to make this show better and make it uh, in the shuffle of, of whatever podcast you're listening to because we've got a lot of really cool, fun, exciting things, and uh, we'd love to share it. On Twitter, hit us up at Peach, P-I-E-S-C-H, underscore Stucast, S-T-U-Cast. Um, we're, we're constantly trying to put out fun material, uh, hot takes, uh, well, Peach is good at the hot takes, but hot takes out there, um, and and hit our backlog up too because we uh, Peter Thomas Fornatale, Gary Stevens, Kevin Pauga, um, you know we we've got tons of material. The, this past week, uh, you know we we had Scott Bernstein on talking about mob in the sports. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, bang, bang, shoot him up, Al Capone, John Gotti, what you gonna do? That's out there. Really fun conversation, really interesting conversation. Um, a lot of stuff you, you probably never heard of in there before, so check that out. And even this week, part one, Mike Maloney. Now, I do want to address this, right? So, technical audio issues. They rear their ugly head. I know. Everybody says, oh, my Wi-Fi's bad. It's bad here, too. Right? But part of the issue was was the software, the device, the setup, in addition to the Wi-Fi. A little inside baseball for you. A little slider on the inside corner. Okay? We fixed it. We have. We've identified the issue. And so this episode... Crystal clear, it doesn't sound like I'm talking 20,000 leagues under the sea, like I'm Jacques Cousteau 
uh, or I'm a time traveler and I'm jumping on something Mike said two seconds in the past. Uh, so that issue has been rectified. And thank you for understanding. Thank you for downloading and giving it a try. We fixed it. Um, going forward, not going to be an issue. So, uh, today, part two, give you a little peek. We have a conversation really about how, how we fix racing. How, how, do, how do we make this industry better? Mike's been an advocate. He's been a steward of the game. He's pushed for reforms, and, and we talk about some of those reforms. We also talk about, you know, it's not all doom and gloom because horse racing is an amazing sport. If you go out to the track, you're going to have a good time. It's a fun time. It's a great day. Um, hopefully we do get to go back out to the track sooner than later, but, you know, that's another story. Um, and then we, we do preview a little bit of Churchill, some ideas to think about, some things to understand broadly as we go about handicapping. And, and it's going to be, he has some really good tidbits that if you're a weekend warrior, um, maybe it's something to think about. Uh, coming up, we have an amazing set of guests coming. Jonathan Kinchin at UT Big Hair. Hook 'em horns. We're going to be talking everything under the sun. It's going to be, you know, hate to copy my guests, but, you know, the JK one-on-one series at In The Money Media. If you're not listening to that, you're wrong. It's fantastic. Uh, it's going to be one of those conversations where we're just sitting around, pour a cold one, and we just have a conversation and... Hopefully, it's going to be lively and fun. He's a really cool dude, and I think if you're not even a, a horse racing guy, per se, you're going to find this guy very interesting and uh, funny. He's a fun guy. Um, we've got Premier League starting up June 1st. We're going to be attacking that with uh, an expert overseas. We're lining that up. That'll be coming up in the next few weeks, and I'm really psyched. We got a special guest, me and me and Mike talk about it towards the end of the show. Very special guest coming on that I'm, I'm, I'm amped for, quite frankly. I'm amped to talk to him. So, uh, that being said, I want to roll right into this interview. Thank you to Mike. And, yo, one last thing. If you are interested in betting with an edge, which is... Like me and PTF have said, not to toot his horn, but toot toot. Hey, this is one of the best books. If you're going to get into horse racing, if you're going to get into the sport, you want to understand how to bet it, you want to improve your game, so on and so forth. You just want a good read. Um, betting with an edge is out there and should be in your in your library. The copies you can find on Amazon, they're pricey. They're pricey. It's it's like uh, it's like gold bullion out there. It's pricey, but if you hit up at Looms Boldly on Twitter, hit him up with a DM. Say hey, I want a copy. I'm pretty sure. And last talking with him, he said that he had a few copies available. Please do that. Please check it out. You'll you'll thank me later. I'll appreciate it. Michael appreciate it. And PTF can get a few more shekels in his jar so he can get some uh, high-class scotch or bourbon. And that's what we're here to do. Uh, but without further ado, 
part two of Mr. 23, and I'm Michael Jordan of Horse Players, Mike Maloney. Welcome back for part two. Um, Mike, thank you for coming back on because uh, the first one, some technical issues, but this time we've got it figured out. Mike Maloney tries technology, wins an upset, <laughs> plus 1,200 in Vegas. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then you, you could have probably gotten a lot more than that if you'd have played it right. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to say Mike Maloney uh, survives in technology. How about that? Yes, well, you know, it, it, without, go, it, without going and beating the point, if you haven't listened to the first part of this, it dropped on Monday. It's uh, a really great content, even though you get uh, a guy like me fumbling and bumbling around like Franco Harris trying to get a football. Uh, it, it's, it's there. The content's there. And even more of that's available in Betting with an Edge. But, but today we're, we're going to kind of segue a little bit off of that. Um, still something that's in Betting with an Edge, which we'll get to. And, and this part is going to be primarily centered around what, what, do, we, what do we find that racing can sustain uh, and what can it improve upon? And uh, I guess the, the first question to really tee up for you, Mike, is, you know, the horse racing industry has, does have some glaring uh, weaknesses, but what are some of the things that we are doing right? Because a lot of people out there never talk about what we're doing right. Well, and I, I'm probably guilty of that sometimes, Alan, myself. Um, it, 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 first of all, let me say that, that I'm a person that I, I doubt if there's anybody out there that, that loves racing any more than I do. I've grown up in it. It's been good to me. Um, I still enjoy getting up early in the morning and going out to my friend's uh, barn and, and hot walking a couple of horses and, and letting a couple of graze out in the grass and the Kentucky sunshine. And uh, it, it's, you know, once it gets in your blood, it's, it's like nothing else. So uh, that is, is, is something that's immeasurable in the intrinsic value to racing it's uh, people fall in love with the horses people fall in love with the with the barn area and the people and and it's uh, uh that's a great thing we have going for us and yeah you take anybody to the track their first time it, they're going to be hard pressed to not have a good time that's right i always say if you you know if you don't have a good time at keeneland you're it's your own fault uh or you know or churchill or del mar or saratoga or a lot of other tracks for that matter um another thing that racing has uh that's i hope we sustain is is at its core racing is the greatest gambling game on the planet i, I defy anyone to find a more intricate multifaceted form of, of gambling than trying to decipher a 12 horse field, uh, maybe on the turf, uh, with, you know, a fairly equally matched field, uh, that is, uh, that's going to require all the brain power that, that anyone has. Um, 
it, it's it, it, and then when you factor in all the different choices on the betting menu of, of how to approach that race, when you once you form your handicapping opinion, where do you go? You know, what's the best option and and to try to take advantage of your opinion if you if you are right. So, so at its core, it it's it's a tremendous gambling product. Um you know, what we do with that basic product, you know, as we try to facilitate bringing that to the wagering public, I don't always agree with the way we approach that, but the, but the core, the core product is good. Um, you know, also we have, uh, we have a unique situation where we have, uh, men and women, uh, competing on a level playing field as jockeys, as trainers, um, as owners. Um, it, it, I don't think we make enough of that. I mean, that's uh, a, a great part of our sport too. We have, you know, we have all economic levels, all social levels, all races. We have, uh, you know, the whole, uh, uh, some of 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 who we are as a as a country and a and a planet all wrapped up in in uh you know the the people that participate in racing uh so you know, we have a lot you know we have a lot to offer uh, but uh i think sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot before before we get uh the finished product across the wire but uh i assume yeah. we'll get that soon yeah, no, and and that's a perfect tie-in. So, you know, if if I had you, you know, just think about some bullet points. What what are some things, some topics where you think we can improve on? Since we have this wonderful game, this wonderful sport and industry, where can we where can we improve to market it to a larger audience? Especially in a time like now, where there's not much going. Um, and and there's a lot of eyes shifting to horse racing. Yeah, I I think the first thing we need to do is just to step back a little bit and 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 take a kind of a macro look at at what we're doing as an industry. I I think the first thing we should examine is 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 our pricing model. Uh, I would submit that racing is overpriced versus its competition. Uh, the average takeout in racing is around 20%. And, you know, if you bet a lot of other gambling games, uh, sports wagering, for example, or a lot of popular casino games, they'll come in around 5%. Can you explain uh, to the, what, to the layman, how to think of takeout? Yeah, it's, it's simply uh, for every dollar that's bet. If at a 20% takeout, 80 80 cents of that dollar is returned to the winning betters. At a 5% takeout, 95 cents of that is returned to the better. Now, you know, that's a, that's a, very, uh, that's a very large difference. And, and the, the reason given for that by the decision makers in racing is the, is the cost of putting on the show is, is the way it's usually phrased. Um, and I understand that when they're talking about the cost of putting on the show, they're talking about the purses that are paid out to the horsemen and all the expense that's involved with running a race meet. 
um, maintaining the track, stable areas. You know, there's a, there's a lot of expense there. And, and I understand all that. I get it. But there's, there's a lot of difference between 5% and 20%. You know, I, I think we've just gone out of bounds. It's, it's kind of interesting. I saw a post on, online the other day about when, when the parimutuel system was first rolled out, the takeout was 5%. And when I first got involved in racing, I think the blended take was about 14%. So, you know, think about it in terms of, uh, you know, if you're a, a middle-aged person and in your lifetime, what you've seen is what I mean is uh, when when I got into racing, there was, you know, there were a few state lotteries, but there were, and then there was Vegas was legal and, and Atlantic City, and that was about it as far as legal gambling. Well, fast forward till now, and you have, you know, lotteries in nearly every state, and you have uh, uh, daily fantasy sports and you have actual sports wagering and uh, you have poker and, and you have uh, online uh, gaming and you have competition from, from everywhere. Well, what's racing's response been to increase competition? Our response has been to raise our prices and as we've done that, if you look at the numbers in, uh, on racing's handle, which handle is just a term we use for the total of all the betting that, that is, is done on uh, thoroughbred racing in the U.S. over a year's time, that number, oh, say since 2007, has gone down over 25%. That's staggering. So if you, and we've had a lot of advantages during that time. We've been during most of that time, we were the only form of legalized online wager. And, and we had a nice bump uh, a couple of years ago with the, uh, with the withholding laws being changed, the federal withholding laws. And uh, uh, that, I think, we had a slight bump in handle over the last couple of years. And I think that's attributable to um, to getting that the withholding law passed, and get, which is essentially, and it, and it really helps out, um, you know, guys like yourself and the Matisses and, uh, Absolutely. especially guys who are hitting big bets. So, uh, what it means is 300 times your base bet, I believe is. So if you're betting 20 bucks to win or 50 bucks to win on a, just absolute bomb and it comes in you're not having to go to sign any w-2s or irs forms or anything like that exactly it was it was an unfair regulation that was in place for decades so what what it basically did is it 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 it, if i bet a a thousand dollar pick six on a single ticket it viewed that as one two dollar bet when i won even though the ticket says a thousand dollars right on it, that that was the cost of the ticket. It, it, from a tax standpoint, it, it figured the 300 to one on $2 rather than on a thousand dollars. So, you know, in the casino, uh, 
requirements, uh, reporting and withholding requirements aren't the same because the casinos were smart enough to realize that that would hurt their churn and they didn't allow that to happen. You can still go into a casino all this time uh, today or 10 years ago when we were being withheld for $5,000 in, in net winnings. You could, all that time you could go into a casino, win a million dollars at a progressive slot, and you would be given the option of whether to have the withholding taken out or not. If you chose to, to just leave the casino with the entire million, you could. At a racetrack in Kentucky, for instance, 31% of that would have been held. You'd had to leave 310 grand at the, at the teller's booth. So um, that's a big disadvantage for racing. We finally got, we got that taken care of, but we, you know, we operated under that uh, handicap for decades. Um, and I have to imagine you sit back sometimes and think, man, it, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if that was the case, by now you'd be in a yacht off Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I don't, you know, I'm not big on tooting my own horn, but I will a little bit here. I brought that to racing. The fact that, you know, I took that to a meeting of racing execs and no one there could even really understand in the beginning what I was talking about in the difference between the withholding and reporting requirements for racetracks versus casinos. But after lengthy explanation, the point got across. I explained how that's dramatically affects your churn and the process started that was in about 2000 and the process started, which took about 18, 17, 18 years to get to the finish line to actually get the the IRS regulations changed. But, um, you know, that's, I'm going to say some negative things about racing leadership probably today. And, and, you know, it's not because I know a lot of the, of the guys and, I, and, and women and I, uh, you know, they're nice people and they're, and they're smart people, but um, they have not done a good job for whatever reason when it comes to things like this. The, the withholding is a good example, but, you know, the pricing is another example. Uh, what business school teaches you? when you have declining revenues, your revenues have declined 25% and your competition has increased exponentially. What business school teaches you to raise prices in that environment? That that's how you fix that situation. None, I, you know, I, it, where they would laugh you out of the room, but that's what racing has done. Um, so as someone who's, who makes their living from racing, as someone who's owned horses, hundreds of horses over the years, I've bred horses, I've sold horses at the sales, I've bought horses at the sales. You know, I've been a part of the industry and I've seen it from a lot of different sides. I've won purse money and, you know, and I've benefited from selling a horse for a, for a big dollar at auction. And, you know, and I've paid stud fees. Um, but, but, the rest of racing is basically driven by the wagering dollar. The wagering dollar in a large part determines the purse levels. Now you have some states that are 
that are uh, uh, slot funded partially and expanded gaming funded partially. And that's wonderful, that helps, but that's a very slippery slope because that's not something that's that's guaranteed to racing in a lot of states. So well, and and especially during right now, I just got off the phone um, over the weekend with a, a friend who's a a big claimer in Maryland, and he's already really hurt by the downturn now. But when but when he started looking at the purse structure, a third of it's guaranteed by the casino revenue. And that's a situation where now, now already in a tenuous position, when they run their horse back, and let's say the horse even wins and gets claimed, uh, they're not even making their money back on the horse that they've put in. Right, right. And and there's you know, uh, unfortunately, the 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 pandemic's effect on on our economy is is going to put a lot of states under more financial pressure even than they've been under and yeah. there's going to be a a, a huge uh, uh tendency there for for states to want to claw back some of these monies that they've allocated to tracks for purses um i think we've made a big mistake in racing i've been a proponent for many many years of of taking part of the of the expanded gaming and slot money and you know part of that goes for purses and part of it is kind of windfall profits for the tracks i would say that i've always preached that there should be a third leg to that stool and it should be to lower takeout and to increase your customer base to strengthen your customer base well, that, essentially that, seeding pools is that what you're kind of talking about you, you, that's a you know that's way down the line in in that way of thinking you know that would okay. fit in with that way of thinking but no i'm I'm just talking about kentucky downs has kind of taken that approach i Corey johnson the the ex uh, uh head of kentucky downs and I had had this conversation many, many years ago when he was first getting started down there um, about how if you will invest in giving the customer a better deal, the customer will come. They'll respond. You know, they like getting a bargain. They like uh, a reasonable takeout in, a, in, a, in, a, in big fields and a good quality racing. So, and, and to back and, that point up, didn't the, didn't Kentucky Downs this year have its most successful meet? Yes, Kentucky Downs is. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that, but they've had the most explosive growth of any track that I know of in in uh, American racing. So, there was so many people at um, uh, the fall meet, the the late fall meet that they had last year. Uh, so many people I know were playing Kentucky Downs. So yeah. many people. I enjoy playing it too. And I, um, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's not an easy track, but it's no, no. rewarded very handsomely. You only have to be right once or twice a day because, uh, you will not, you know, you will be pleased with the price usually when they hang it up. It's, uh, I get so used to, uh, yeah, I'm usually watching the will pays and things, but uh, you know, you, the last glance you had at the exact, it was paying $32 and, uh, you know, there was a lot of money bet at that point. And then, you know, it always seems like it comes back 
you know, 27 or 28. Um, that doesn't tend to happen that much at Kentucky Downs. It, uh, uh, you know, I, it, it's, uh, uh, it's not easy to cash a ticket, but when you do, you are, uh, you're a well, you're well rewarded. Um, besides takeout, besides takeout, Mike, is, what are some other things on, on that, um, that theoretical bullet point list? (laughs) All right. Uh, you know, I just think that we don't protect, uh, not enough emphasis is put on protecting the customer's interest in race. Yeah. Um, I used to say a guy that, uh, is playing on, on a laptop or he's playing on his phone or he's playing on a, uh, at a simulcast facility. Uh, he's like, um, you know, he's like, he's on the, on, on a space shuttle. <laughs> he, he doesn't have any connection to, you know, the track he's playing. He, he's dependent upon, uh, you know, the, the, the host track and, and, and their signal and, uh, their protocol in the, in the tote room and, and he's dependent on them for everything for them to, 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 to give him uh, a good feed where he can maybe see that a horse is sweated up or something. He's dependent on them to, to give him a, a will pay grid and a, and a, a probable pay grid that he, you know, that he can make some sense out of and they can easily access. Uh, he's dependent upon them to, once he does make a wager, and it goes through cyberspace to California or New York or wherever he's playing. He's dependent upon that track to protect his wagering interest, to protect his money and make sure that, that once the race starts, that the betting stops. Uh, so uh, I'm not, I don't feel like racing takes that seriously enough. They love this what became found money when simulcasting started, you know, all, all this uh, new handle that was driven by people being able to bet without physically being at the track. That's a wonderful thing. Well, part of the, of the part of that is, is a responsibility by the, by the host track and by the tracks in general to, since we're going to take these bets, in a different way than we always have. You've always just handed your money to the teller at the track all these decades in racing. Now we're going to do it a different way once simulcasting started. Well, I don't think the proper protocols have been in place and the proper amount of of, um, concern has been taken by, by racing as a whole. Uh, I know the proper amounts of money haven't been spent to secure the, the wagering pools. And I, this is my pet peeve and, you know, forgive me if I, if I go on a little bit, but I just don't think most players realize how much we're, we're just twisting in the wind when it comes to, uh, having our money protected in the wagering pool. You're basically, what the tracks will tell you is that we have the Thoroughbred Racing Protection Bureau, the TRPB, and they have algorithms and they have um, software, sophisticated software, and they have this and they have investigators and they have that. 
and they are watching everything that's happening in these wagering pools. Well, I can tell you from experience, that's total BS. Uh, I was involved in a, uh, in trying to uh, show, make more than show racing, I'd already shown racing, in trying to force racing to admit that past posting occurred. I was able to do that in 2007. That was the first time that, that, that any track ever admitted that bets were made after a race was run. Now, can you, yeah, you kind of gave the definition right there, but can, but can you give like a, just a broader yeah, context yeah. of what past posting means? Yeah, it, it, it's simply the, you know, someone making a wager once the race has begun, once they have, you know, more information than the people that, that bet before the race began. And there's, there's, you know, all kinds of, uh, offshoots of this there's the late cancellation where you make two bets maybe and you bet two speed horses and if one of them gets left you cancel that one well the odds drop on the uh on the uh, speed horse that you still left your wager live on and the odds rise on the horse they got left uh I, i see that all the time that's uh and and then there are other you know hijinks going on that have gone on in the in the tote system for, for decades. And, um, you know, an example of, of the other hijinks would be when Chris Harn and his friends hijacked the, uh, 2002 Breeders Cup pick six pool, the year the Valpone won the classic. Can you describe that story? Cause I, I, I was, uh, the first time I heard that story because it's way before I got into the game, uh, that, that story was like, mind-boggling well yeah the totes system that racing would tell you they would tell you then they tell you now that it's so secure and you don't have to worry about anything and oh we have this check and we have a cross check and we have a third check to make sure and it just all bs because yeah you know they may have a few things in place but they're not adequate because i you know in in this instance what happened in 2002 was that three employees of, of the tote company, Auto Tote was, was in charge of the, of the, was the operating tote system for that wager. And Auto Tote, uh, the, you know, just through flaws in the tote system and without getting out too far in the weeds, what I said a couple of minutes ago about uh, how how we take wagers changing so drastically when simulcasting came in. What racing didn't do was when simulcasting came in and 90% of the wagers came from off site, which is the, is the rough figure today. 90% of the money is wagered away from the host track. When that happened, the tote, the tote system wasn't rebuilt it wasn't replaced to reflect this huge change in the way we operated racing wager. There were just little add-ons made to the existing tote system because racing didn't expect simulcasting to become anything near what it became. It was expected to be one or 2% of the handle in the beginning and it became 90%. But so now years later, racing still hasn't, spent the money to 
bring in a state-of-the-art tote system that would reflect how 90% of the money is wagered away from the host track. Well, that was the basic flaw in 2002 for the for this Breeders' Cup scandal, and it's still a lot of these flaws are still in place today. What these guys did, they worked for the tote company. They <clears throat> were able to go into the system, into the tote system, and they were able to enter a, a, a ticket that had four singles and two alls. The last two races were alls. So the pick six is what they call a scan pool. The Superfect is a scan pool. The Super High Five is a scan pool. Any, the, the pick five, any pool with four or more legs is a scan pool. I, I did quite a bit of research on the, on, on the, uh, the tote system uh, a, a few years ago. And, I, and I'm not an expert, but I understand it enough to, to, to know that it doesn't work like it's meant to. Uh, so uh, the pick six is a scan pool. Any scan pool, the, but to save bandwidth is my understanding, to save money, the numbers aren't sent until a certain number of legs are completed. Well, in the pick six, that's four legs. So they wait, the bet is made, but the information isn't transferred. All that's transferred is that there was a bet made for X number of dollars. But the runner numbers, the actual horses that are in that bed, that were placed in that bed, aren't transmitted until those four races were run. So these guys, they're tote system employees, they went back into the tote. After the first four races, they filled in the first four winners in their single, 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 single for the first four legs. And then they didn't worry about the last two because they had all all. Well, <clears throat> they would have probably gotten away with it, but there, it was unfortunate for them that a long shot won the Breeders' Cup Classic that year. Valpone, I think, paid maybe $40, $60, something like that. So they ended up having the only ticket, Jeez. the only winning <laughs> ticket in a $3 million-plus pool. <laughs> okay, but now here's the, here's the funny part. So they might have gotten away with that, but they they didn't have a two dollar ticket. They had a twelve dollar ticket. Jesus. They had to pick six six times on one ticket. That's how they got caught. And that was because they were greedy and each one of them wanted to have it, have their full ticket. And then they had, you know, buddies that, that they were trying to, to 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 bring into the mix. The reason that they were getting greedy was that, you know, and, and this wasn't really brought to the public. It, the reason that they were getting greedy is that they had run this scam times many times before successfully and with racing not having a clue to what they'd done. They'd stolen a pick six pool at Belmont right before that. But, you know, that's not in the, in the, uh, uh, the racing form, or it's not in, you know, it's not in the newspapers. It's, you know, no, they just got away with it. So when I was researching my book, I, I had, uh, I had met Chris Harm once and I, I tracked him down and had drinks with him and asked him all about, you know, how all this went down. 
And he said it was, you know, basically like taking candy from a baby that they had run numerous scams where they just, you know, they just took the money out of the pool basically. And, you know, so when, when that can happen multiple times for hundreds of thousands of dollars and uh, all the TRPD and their algorithms and uh, their uh, software packages that, that racing will tell you are protecting your interest when you make a bet. You know, most of that's BS in my opinion. So, and I think the facts, you know, I think the facts back that up. But so even beyond, you know, if I'm making the case that the, that the one entity that's in racing that's supposed to protect your money after you bet it, the TRPB, if I'm making the case that, that, that they can't police the wagering properly, let me go a little one step past that and just explain how that oversight is structured. The TRPB is a subsidiary of the TRA, the Thoroughbred Racing Association. The Thoroughbred Racing Association is wholly funded by the racetracks themselves. The TRPB, this oversight agency, is funded by the TRA. So you, you know, racing's idea of oversight for the wagering pools, and then we're talking about 10 to 12 billion with a B dollars a year. Then most of it changing hands in cyberspace. Racing's idea of oversight for that is the people doing the oversight are funded wholly by the racetracks that they're supposed to oversee. So, you know, it, it's maybe you guys, maybe somebody out there thinks that's oversight. I, you know, it, it's laughable to me. It's kind of uh, like, it's kind of like Lucky Strike back in the 40s and 50s, trotting out some doctors paid by, you know, paid by Lucky Strike. Hey, guys, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. I, so I make the case in betting with an edge that, and I document all this stuff. I go into detail. I, you know, Pete and I, we, we spent a lot of long, long days and long, long nights, you know, trying to, to lay all this out. So, you know, if someone does want to know that it's there because I don't, you know, it's hard to find this information and you know, it, I don't see it uh, in many places, but, but we, we went to great lengths to, to, to get it out there. And um, it, it's, um, it, it's not just, you know, the, the inside jobs by, uh, by the tote company, it's, or by employees of the tote company. It's, you know, graded stakes in Southern California that are documented in the book where you could still bet the race and the, and the, the numbers were up on the tote board and the race was over and the pools were still open. So a, a graded stake at Hollywood Park. So, um, you know, and, and there's, there's numerous cases that we go through and, and we document. So, and that uh, is, that is the, um, kind of the culmination of some of the last chapters in betting with an edge. Uh, and, and you're right because that story 
that's in the book is it's um it's eye opening for for and that's what that's part of the reason I think the book is so good is because it's covering you know your time as uh, a horse owner um you know we talked last time about the kind of sorta kind of a trainer kind of not dumb luck right, uh, right. at the barn um professional player uh advocate steward of the game it's it's covering so much um is it fair to say uh, from what we've been talking about so far if you had what would be the percentage in your mind um you know if if uh you were made the czar of horse racing what percentage of the problem can be mitigated by uh redoing the tote well, a, a big part of, of these, uh, you know, of these problems, like, you know, I've just described, uh, it, it, you know, if you put in a, a state-of-the-art tote system, there would be, there would be a lot of benefits. Um, well, I mean, in general, for, for all the issues you see in horse racing, is it, it would, would a new tote take care of 50% of them, 60 10%. I, 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 I think I think more than fifty percent, and uh, you know it may be ninety percent. I, I have, I you know it would be dependent upon what you know what exactly they brought in, but um, you know what? A, here's some of the things that a new tote system would do. Um, there, there are things that that some players aren't aware of, like the the the, the rules of racing are. Uh, you can have a tote ticket. You can buy a physical ticket from a teller. You can hand him 20 bucks and, and get a $20 win ticket on the five horse in the Kentucky Derby, let's say. And if you're at Keeneland and you're betting on the Derby at Churchill, or you know, no matter where you are across the country, you're betting on the Derby. If that bet, they can run that race and your long shot can come in and pay $80. So your 20 to win is now worth 800 bucks. And you can take that ticket up to the, to the cashier to get your 800 bucks. And if for some reason that bet wasn't merged properly is the wording that they use at the host track, then all they have to do is hand you $20 and refund your money. Even though you have a paper ticket and even though you paid your money to get that paper ticket, same way with betting online you can get a bet confirmed message and the money can be deducted from your account and if that bet doesn't merge properly it can just be wiped out and they can just refund your account and you don't have a bet so i just think that's inherently wrong you know to me i was brought up you know a deal's a deal so uh I, I, I think that's something really bad for racing. And we've been lucky, but you know, what eventually I'm, I'm afraid will happen is someone will have a half a million dollar pick six ticket and it won't merge properly. And then we're going to have another scandal, you know, on our hands. We're well, we, had, we had something approaching that, not, not on that level, but at Remington a, a few weeks ago. Well, with, where they didn't pay a gentleman. Yeah, I, I, you know, I hope he gets paid. He sounds like he deserves to get paid to me. Yeah, anytime uh, you pick seven out of six winners, stone cold. <laughs> uh, hard well, it, hard it, to know, fight I, that. 
yeah, if we if we want to, I, I don't know every detail of that, but yeah, know, me that, me either. I know it would be com, racing commissions uh, don't always, uh, you know, have the level of of betting expertise that is required to write good rules, uh, you know, to to for the bets. So I think that's what happened in that case. Is is the the rule was poorly was poorly written. And the track, you know, saw a way to keep their carryover live, and 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 try to, uh, you know, try to give the gentleman uh, the consolation and not pay him the jackpot. <clears throat> I hope uh, I hope he gets his money. I, you know, from what I know about it, it sounds like he should. But I, you're, you, I want to wrap up the the what would the new tote system do? Question is. It, it, another thing it would do is <clears throat> when the race begins, almost instantaneously, the odds would be final on the screen. You could, even the exacto prices could be put up. You know, the race is running three, two, going down the backside, the threes ahead, the two second on the chicklets. Uh, the, the exact odds could be put on those chicklets a few steps out of the gate. And the exact, you know, if this race stays three two, the the exact 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 price could be shown below the chicklets or on the bottom of the chicklet. Uh, you know, it would it would. I hear a lot of grumbling around the track uh, when I'm there about uh, oh, you know, the, the, the people aren't stupid. You know, they they don't totally trust the tote. They don't totally trust the prices. They've seen too much if they've been coming to the track a long time. So it would eliminate a lot of that. It would, it would uh, restore confidence in the tote to some degree. And after time, if a good tote system were put into place, it would restore even more confidence. And, you know, if you're going to operate a betting game, the people have to trust that, their their wager is is secure once they place that into the pool that they're not being you know that there's not money being siphoned off that once uh, once the money's in the pool and I and I hit on chicklets there that's another uh, thing that a lot of players have just kind of let slide and and some people don't even notice it is in the last few years the odds have been taken down off the chicklets when the race begins. They'll have the running number up there. It's the four horse on top. It's the three horse running second. But, you know, ever since those chicklets went on the screen years ago, there's always, you know, the, the odds have always been there. Well, that was a lot of the way that people could tell that odds were changing during the race. And a lot of times that doesn't have anything to do with past posting. When the odds are changing during the race, a lot of times that has to do with the pools becoming final, with the slowness of this outdated tote system trying to bring all these wagers back to the host track and get everything final uh, so, the, so the final odds can be posted, you know, during the race. So, I, you know, I'm not saying that every time odds change, it's past posting. I'm not saying that by any means. It's not. I understand how there's, you know, there's 20-second cycles. 
10 second cycles. I was told a decade ago that we would have that down to five or 10 seconds by now. Well, we don't, uh, it, it is not even close, but, but racing, this is where I get back to this overall point of racing is not protecting the customer's interest. Here's how racing dealt with that. Look at your chiclets next tomorrow or the next time you watch a race. At most tracks, at, at all the big tracks, the odds won't be on those chiclets at the beginning of the race. They'll only let the odds show on the chiclets once the race is final because they don't want to, they don't want the players to see the odds change. Now, if you watch a place like, uh, um, uh, Will Rogers Downs, for instance, you'll, you'll, the chiclet, the, the odds are on the chiclets the entire race. And you'll see, uh, I saw a horse, I think last Tuesday, maybe at Will Rogers, that was seven to one. As he took the lead, turning into the stretch, the horses are hitting the top of the stretch. He's seven to one, and he paid twelve twenty. <laughs> you know that's not quite seven to one. But my point is, you know, what level of respect do Churchill Downs really led the charge on this chiclet move on taking the odds off the chiclets? So what level of respect do they have for the player when their solution to the odds changing during the race for an extended period of time because of an outdated tote system, which is what they'll tell you themselves, is, is the reason. Their solution for that is to take the odds down and put the player in the dark. You know, no transparency. To me, you know, that's just a slap in the face. That's just like, you know, you're an idiot. Uh, you know, it's the old saying, you know, treat you like a mushroom, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Somebody please explain to me how that's not disrespectful to the customer. But, you know, a lot of players I talked to didn't even notice it happened. Blissful ignorance, I think, is. Well, I, yeah, I, uh, you know, maybe uh, in some cases we get what we deserve, but you know the 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 over the the overarching point to this is is not to you know to to hammer on every uh, single thing like this until the listeners' ears bleed. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just I, I just want to show. If, if you're, you know, racing execs will, will go on forever about, you know, how we're gonna, we want to grow racing. You know, how can we, what can we do to bring new people in? What, you know, what, uh, may we need another triple crown winner? You know, that'll create the interest. You know, we, we, that's all useless. It's all meaningless unless you fix the gambling part of the game. The, you know, racing is a gambling game. People come to the racetrack to see beautiful horses and to, you know, have some cocktails and some good food, yes. But they don't drive the finances of racing. 
racing is funded by the, the regulars, by your core customers. And your core customers' main focus is the gambling. And anyone should see that. I think that's indisputable. So it, to, to, to serve those customers, those core customers, you, you have to, to address these issues of uh, the, their money not being secure when they bet it. I mean, that's uh, until you clean those kind of things up, you can talk about all the, the, you know, the other stuff you want, but it, it, you know, you're not going to drive handle when you've lost 25% of your handle in a, you know, in, in a uh, environment where you really should have been growing handle, you're doing something wrong. And, and it's my strong opinion that this is one of the, the big things we're doing wrong is we're not protecting our customers' interests. Aside from, from that point, which uh, I, th- I think you're spot on with, is, is there, what, what do you see as the most dangerous part to our game? And I know I asked that question because, you know, Santa Anita last year, uh, you know, prominently every single day, it doesn't matter how it happened or why it happened, horses dying on the track, and that gets big-time news. Um, you've got the uh, indictments coming down in March. You've got a lot of care-related um, issues do you see that as like the other factor that can be dangerous to the game? Well, sure. It's, it's, you know, it's already had a, a, a dramatic impact in the way, you know, the public perception of our sport. I, I know that firsthand because I'm, I would guess that the, you probably had a similar experience. It, you know, I've had contact from, uh, f- friends and family that that want to know from someone in the industry, yeah, what in the world is going on? Yep, because uh, they've seen the scroll go across the the ES, ESPN screen. Uh, that you know that more horses died. Um, so you know, and that's not a it's not a pleasant or easy thing to try to explain. And it, it's, it's not a comfortable position for me or probably a lot of other people in racing. Um, and, and I don't, you know, I don't know that I have the answers for that. I think, um, you know, I think we, we, we need to, you know, have the safest surfaces that, that we can have. I, uh, you know, I think some mistakes were, were made at Santa Anita when it comes to their racing surface and, and I think instead of, you know, uh, accepting uh, responsibility for that, that, that uh, you know, they did a little bit of an end around and, and uh, I don't think that served them well. Um, you know, I think they got, uh, you know, extreme weather conditions and, yeah, got got a, that certainly had to play some part in it. And that, that's just a little unlucky. That, that well, but you know, I, from what little I know, the track was, was sealed and, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think, um, uh, you know, the, the, the horses were put in a, in a vulnerable position at that point. Um, and, and, and then I think they totally mishandled the, the PR 
you know, since then. Sure. Uh, there's been very little, uh, you know, very little anyone standing up and, and, and saying, Hey, you know, we did this wrong and, and, and we're going to try to do it right now. I, you know, I think a little more of that would have gone a long way, but, uh, I'm not an expert by any means on that. That's not my, my strong suit. I just hope that, um, you know, that we, everything that, that can possibly be done is done to, you know, to protect the horses. And I, and I think that's, that's probably the case now because it's a, it's such a serious uh, threat to racing that, you know, only a fool would, would not do everything in their power to, uh, to make things as safe as, as possible. And, you know, I know the, the horsemen and women that, that, uh, you know, that I am associated with love their horses pretty much like their children. And, uh, uh, you know, are, are trying to do everything they can to uh, make the racing as safe as possible, make the training as safe as possible. Um, so, uh, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of good people that want to do the right thing there, and I, you know, I hope that uh, that that we're that we're able to to improve that situation. But I think a lot also think in reality a lot of <clears throat> a lot of uh, public relations damage has been done that that will be uh you know won't be able to be turned around i i think uh some of the folks kind of spearheading that effort uh like you said to kind of think of how how do we dig ourselves out of this hole um people like craig burnick folks like patrick cummings uh thoroughbred ideas foundation um love love the thoroughbred idea foundation uh don't, uh, you know, don't know Pat real well, know Craig a little bit, uh, but I, I read uh, their posts on social media. I read most of their papers that they have, that they post on the Thoroughbred Ideas Foundation site. And I think they're, you know, two guys that are totally on the right track that, that I agree with, you know, what they say nearly all the time. And, uh, you know, I wish that racing's leadership would, would pay more attention to gentlemen like that. Another gentleman that, uh, that I think very highly of that I think racing's leaders could learn a lot from is, is Marshall Graham. Yes. He's, uh, yeah. <clears throat> he's an economics professor at Rhodes college. He, uh, operates a 10 strike racing stable. Uh, he's a, he's a player. He's a, he's a sharp player, uh, and he's a sharp man, uh, and uh, he's he's very well spoken. He can communicate uh, a lot of these things a lot better than I can, and I uh, I hope that 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 people in racing that would like to get leaders in racing that would like to get some of these uh, problems straightened out or start moving in the right direction would would take advantage of of Craig and Pat and a, and a, and a person like Marshall who, uh, you know, they have, uh, uh, tremendous knowledge of the game in a lot of different areas and, uh, good insights in, into, uh, innovative ways that, that we can fix some of these things. You know, just to wrap, uh, uh wrap up this kind of train of thought and, and put a bow on it. Do you, do you subscribe to the idea that, having much like the NFL per se, having a national uh, committee or some kind of national 
association with all the powers of, you know, uniformity and, you know, the rules don't change because the Titans go to Jacksonville or, you know, so on and so forth. Um, do you, do you subscribe to that? Cause I know that a lot of people have talked about, Oh, if we just have one giant body that controls everything instead of all these little fiefdoms and we're pretending it's like 1640s, uh, Prussia, you know, yeah, uh, exactly. I, you know, definitely racing works better like that, but <clears throat> I know from my time I've dealt a lot with the different race, state racing commissions around the country. And I've spoken to their national conference a couple of times. Um, and I've got, I even flew out a couple of days early to meet privately with a, every commissioner that I could find just to try to bring them up to speed on, on some of these things that I've been, that I've been talking about. But, uh, you know, although there are a, a lot of good people that I met that are commissioners and, and a lot of well-meaning people, there's a lot of turnover in racing commissions. Uh, it's, you know, it's a, basically a political uh, appointee situation. So uh, it, it just, uh, it's almost spinning your wheels to try to, to get a, a serious initiative across the country to pull all these. I think last I checked, it was roughly 37 racing states, 37 racing commissions. And, and now they spawned into, they're not racing commissions, they're gaming commissions. And you have the situation in Florida where I don't know what you have. I don't even know if you have a racing commission. So <laughs> uh, you got one commission when I was uh, working with uh, a, a lot more seriously than I am now with trying to solve some of these problems. Uh, it was at the state police department. It was where you contacted the racing commission. So it was a it was a part of the state police, uh, so you know you just run into things that make you scratch your head. And it, I, I, so, bottom line, <clears throat> I think it's impossible to ever bring all that together. There's, like you said, fiefdom is the perfect word. Thirty-seven fiefdoms; those people guard that power with their lives. They're not going to give it up. They, they value that power more than they value improving racing. The only way that this ever changes, and I am, uh, you know, I'm uh, not a uh, guy that, that's a uh, federal oversight cheerleader very often. The only way that that changes is if it, it's just brought in from the feds and mandated and you, and you shut down the, you either shut down the state racing commissions or they're just licensing agents and you override them with this federal body. <clears throat> if you did that and you did it, uh, you, you know, I, I, I realize the nightmares that that can turn into, but I really question if it could be any worse than what we deal with. So, um, I, you know, at this point, it, it, it I, I'm a, I'm a slight edge. I'm going to go 110 on the uh, on the feds because I've just seen too much from the state uh, the state by state deal, and it's it is literally hopeless. I mean, it's it's there's been for 15 years there's been a drive to bring this all together and have a national set of medication regulations 
you know, I, can you imagine being a trainer and you're on the mid Atlantic circuit and you're racing in seven or eight different States and there's seven or eight different sets of medication rules, seven or eight different withdrawal times for the same drug and you're cross entering and you're, you're not sure if this horse will get in and maybe that race doesn't go in Maryland, but it goes uh, in New York or, you know, vice versa. I, you know, it's, it's no way to run an industry. Uh, but you know, th this is, uh, this is the hand we're dealt. And, uh, you know, the, when you, when you combine the, the fractured, uh, structure of the state racing commissions who, you know, very seldom work together. And you link that to the ownership of the racetracks where you have uh, two large corporations that do not play well together. Um, and, um, you know, they have proven time and again that the long-term best interest of racing is certainly nowhere near the the top of their list of priorities um they desperately need to be reined in by the overseers of racing but when the overseeing seers of racing are the state racing commissions they are heavily influenced by uh, by the large tracks in their state and just, you know, this sounds, uh, uh, negative again, but I just got to call them like I see them. The, you know, the, you will rarely see, uh, a large track want something and be denied by a state racing commission. It just rarely, rarely happens. So I, I can uh, think of, uh, I can't think of one such uh, instance in the state of Illinois, <laughs> which yeah. which uh, might be uh, the that's a whole that's a whole different story. How would you like <laughs> to be someone that's invested in the breeding operation in Illinois? Yeah, uh, that's a rough and, deal. Yeah, and, and look where you know look what you know look how you know your interests have been protected, and and, and now you have. Uh, you know, Churchill Downs Incorporated basically holding the state hostage in, you know, in my eyes. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, the, a lot of these racing commissions have brought a lot of this upon themselves. Illinois, you know, since we're talking about that, they, you know, they actually put in a surcharge on winning tickets. Uh, you know, so what did players do? Let's see. If I was in that racing commission meeting where that was passed by a majority of racing commissioners, let's see, I might've said, Oh, well, they might bet online with someone else and not pay the 5%. Uh, I guess nobody in the racing commission knew that with the internet. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like California, you know, the, the decisions they've made, uh, the, you know, the, the raising a takeout years ago when, uh, every economist and every, uh, numbers person in racing that I know of 
was arguing, please don't do that. It's the wrong thing. You should really be doing the opposite. But California Racing chose to race takeout. And if you look at the numbers, it's been nothing but, you know, and there are things that have happened. I'm not saying that's the only factor. But if you look at the numbers from the day they voted that increase, it's been nothing but a downhill drag. Um, pricing matters. And, and pricing is really going to matter because uh, as this uh, drops, Churchill is, is really the first, uh, the first major track coming back, San Anita, uh, as we just mentioned, coming back. This is, I mean, for you, you're uh, a, a very accomplished player, well-respected, but this is something that I don't think you've ever even, uh, you know, obviously run into where it seems like every single horse is going to be almost coming off a layoff. Um, fitness levels are going to be hard to judge. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts going into this meet? Well, I've, you know, I've been rolling that around in my head a little bit. I had uh, um, a conversation this morning that, uh, with someone that I think uh, um, Churchill Downs will be uh, a good opportunity for me, hopefully this meet, at least, uh, at least game plan wise, it, you know, I'm guessing that, that it will be a good opportunity for me because uh, it reminds me of sim the early days of simulcasting. In the early days of simulcasting, uh, people, began to play tracks that they really didn't have a much knowledge of. So, you know, the guy that had the signal from Calder or uh, uh, Golden Gate uh, was, was playing those tracks because it was there on the screen and it was available for him to bet. Uh, but he might have little or no knowledge of, of the intricacies of that track. Um, you know, Churchill is a bigger track and most everyone plays there on Derby week. Uh, and the Breeders' Cup has been at Churchill Downs where people have, uh, have played there. So it's not exactly an apples to apples comparison, but I, I expect that there are going to be, that there's going to be more uninformed money in the pools at Churchill than at a normal meet for sure. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking that that probably uh, it gives me a uh, somewhat of an edge there, um, uh, hopefully, and, and I'll, uh, I'll see how that plays out. You know, just because you think you have the best of it doesn't always mean that you do. So, uh, but I'm going to start out my Churchill meet at a little higher uh, risk level than, than I normally do because of that. Uh, so do you enter into like a new meet, uh, after, uh, you know, just off of what you just said, do you, do you enter a new meet at, uh, you know, we talked last time about earning the right to play. Exactly. Um, what, what percentage of, of your assigned or allotted bankroll that you're willing to, you know, um, turn it to 11, maybe spinal tap reference, uh, what percentage are you going to? Are you going half of it or maybe 40% and seeing how that works? 
Now, of of my max bankroll for a day. Well, yeah. Oh no, your max bankroll for I. You know, I don't know how exactly uh, it works for you. Yeah. But well, like, yeah, yeah. So what? So when I'm, ba- I basically break. You know, break it down is is I have. Um, you know, I I do this. Uh, I vary my wagering sizes way more than most players and and most professional players. Uh, now I write about that a lot in betting with an edge. It, it, I just, I'm not saying that that's the only way to do it. I'm just saying that's what works best for me. And the reason I do it that way is I basically have a one to 10 scale. So, uh, in other words, I might be betting one tenth, uh, risking one tenth in a day, uh, on a certain day, uh, versus, when I'm playing at a 10, uh, you know, I'll be playing 10 times as much as I did when I'm playing at a one. So the reason for that is just that I like to handicap myself just like I handicap the races. I know that when I sit down for a session, a gambling session, the chances of me winning or losing are not the same every day. Uh, you know, I might, you know, there are times when you get, you know, you're having success and someone says something nice about you on the, you know, on the podcast and you kind of get drunk with your own, uh, you know, with, uh, with your own scent there for a second and you want to bet 10 every day. But in, in reality, there are times when I'm just more in sync with what's happening on the track. And there are times when I'm struggling. So, uh, you know, it makes no sense for me, uh, say last week, it makes no sense for me to play Tampa and Gulfstream at two meets that have been going on for, for quite a while. And it's hard to really find uh, a horse that's screaming value because they've all run against each other over the same surface at the same distance over and over again. Um, versus maybe I'm at Churchill next week when horses are coming in from around the country and my um, analysis might give me an edge that a lot of other players wouldn't see in that situation. but when horses have run against each other three or four times in a row, you know, it's almost impossible for them not to see. Pretty so, much, pretty much centering. You, do you believe you're going to have a lot more action bets? Um, as JK would call it, kill bets uh, in this early part of the meet? Well, now my kill bet is what JK would call the, crush their soul bet <laughs> so uh which i love that you know that's the uh, of all the classic jk isms that may be my favorite uh, <laughs> but but so now my action bet is just to keep me in action is just to keep me from losing my mind and to keep me you know kind of focused and 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 in the flow of things uh so that's a less serious bet an action bet is just uh, a minor bet, the least amount that I can bet. People are shocked sometimes <clears throat> I, when I sat in the bluegrass room all the time at Keeneland. I had a uh, couple instances where someone would would 
look stunned and then say, you are Mike Maloney, right? And being serious, they didn't know me, but they knew kind of of me. And I had just bet $20 at the window. And they're like, <laughs> whoa, you know, something doesn't add up. Uh, but, you know, there are races when if I'm playing at a one or a two, or, or it's, a, it's not my main track for the day, if I'm playing Keeneland seriously, and there's a race that comes up at Indiana Downs that, you know, there's a, some little angle that I know from three years ago and I see a 30 to one shot, I may bet $20 to win on it. I may bet $10 to win on it. So, you know, I try to, um, you know, I'm weave, trying to weave a lot of different ideas together at the same time. But basically what I'm trying to do is handicap myself and give myself a number for that day. So, you know, and how much I'm willing to risk. And that's dependent upon, uh, you know, what I think my chances are of winning, what my past performances, what my 30 years at the races show that my tendencies are in certain situations. So I'm taking that into account and that's giving me my risk number for the day. And then once I can settle on what I'm willing to risk for the day, then I can go through the card and I can kind of formulate a, um, you know, a, a game plan of how best to allocate that money throughout the day. And that just popped in my head. That's something I should have said on the previous show, Alan. It, it, it's, it's important is um, I believe, and it took me a long time for this to sink in. I believe that we all know more, you know, those of us that are serious handicappers that are really paying attention. I think we know more in the second half of the card than we do in the first. And I think most players tendency is to come in a little hot and risk too much in the first half of the card. And if it doesn't work out in the first half of the card, they've kind of painted themselves in a corner to where, you know, it's, it, it takes a real, you know, it takes something big to get them out of that box uh, or else they're going to lose. So, so is, that, is it a fair question then? Uh, uh, you know, uh, the early pick five is, I know a lot of folks love the early pick five because generally there is a, a more um, favorable takeout. But are, are you one to only play that if, you know, you have an angle or well, here it would be dependent upon two things. It would be dependent upon <clears throat> number one, what my risk level was for that day. You know, how much yeah. I was playing with and did the, you know, the amount I was going to have to put into a pick five to have a reasonable chance to hit it. Does that fit in with my game plan for that day? You know, can I maintain that for the rest of the day? And the second thing would be, is there a consistent bias at that track? Okay, yes. so if it's uh, if it's if it's Churchill, and, and and that's a track which on the dirt tends to not have much bias, you know, not that they don't sometimes, but you know, most often you, you just don't get a strong bias on the dirt at, at Churchill. So uh, it, it, that gives me more confidence to move into a early pick five or an early pick four, uh, if it's okay. a track that can can tend to have 
significant bias or a shifting bias. Uh, you know, Saratoga was a little like that last year. Uh, had a lot of dead rails, but some a lot worse than others. So that made me hesitant, you know, when I saw that going on. And then there were days where the rail wasn't dead. So if I'm in a situation like that, I'm very hesitant to get involved in a, you know, pick four or pick five early, no matter what the takeout is, just because I think, you know, there's just too much I don't know at this point. I want to let it play itself out. I would rather, you know, wait for the late pick five and then feel like, you know, I know the bias. I know the jocks that are, that are feeling it today. You know, I know the trainer that's already won a race that I like his single and they ate uh, little things like that, that are little edges that are going to add up to, to hopefully get me where I need to go. You know, you mentioned uh, Churchill generally, the dirt track playing fair. Are there times, uh, does, does weather, what role does weather, because we're going to see it, what role does weather play on that dirt track historically? And um, is a turf track just like the dirt there playing pretty evenly? Uh, you know, the weather, it can go either way on the, uh, you know, on the dirt at Churchill. A lot of tracks, you know, tend to, uh, they'll seal them and they'll tend to, to hold speed. Uh, it, Churchill can be like that sometimes, but I, I don't think it, you know, I don't think that's anything you can really count on or say is a strong, strong trend, at least for me. Uh, the, the turf course, uh, uh, I will say there, there are times when, uh, you know, when you get a little weather there where, the outer part of that turf course gets better. So, uh, uh, you know, that's something to look for. But once again, you know, Churchill is a tough, biased place. I wish I had, you know, some clear-cut gem to throw <laughs> out there. But I, but I really don't at, at, at Churchill. It's very much a uh, kind of a be very light on your feet and, and uh, you know, be aware of bias. But – uh, I try not to overplay it too much at Churchill because, uh, you know, bias can be a great friend if you find it early and you're right. But bias can also kind of mess you up. It can get you off, you know, a winner and, and put you on a loser if you end up being wrong about it. And, and in today's world, uh, <clears throat> you know, I heard uh, Duke Batiste mention this the other day and I thought, man, you know, you you said a mouthful right there. Cause I, you know, I totally agree with that, that the track maintenance guys, the track superintendents are much more aggressive, you know, these days. And I don't know exactly, you know, what they do. Maybe they run the water truck more, maybe they run it less. Maybe they, you know, go deeper with the Harrow. I, I, you know, I don't really know, but it seems like you get a lot of tracks where you get, three races that look one way that look like maybe they're a little biased and then uh presto it's gone so um you know and i i think i just see it so often all around the country that i you know i think it has to be um more of a track maintenance track superintendent decision thing so uh you don't hear those track superintendents i hear them ask about it sometimes and uh you know i never hear them say oh yeah we do that 
but uh, it, it's, you know, when I'm making figures, I see that too. You know, you'll see that pattern of the bias changes a little bit and the variant changes a little bit, which just means the track got faster or slower uh, in comparison to the other races. So, um, you know, that's something else to, uh, to, to look out, uh, the, you know, at, at, at Churchill, you just, you just don't want to, you don't want to get married to a bias there unless you're, unless you're really sure. You know, and you mentioned, uh, as a quick aside, uh, Duke Matisse, of course, you know, of the great handicapping family, uh, you know, Absolutely. Chick being the great sire of sires of handicappers. <laughs> I, th- I think Bud could give him a run, but we, you know. Uh, no, well, you know, my, my brother has no interest in the racing. He's, <laughs> he's made a fortune in real estate and, and my sister really could care less either. So, uh, I got, you know, that's, I think that's my problem is I got all the racing gear. So, uh, you know, it's, I got it mainlined right in. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's could be, could, could, uh, explain a lot of, uh, of a lot of my life. But yeah, you, you were mentioning Duke there. And uh, of course, uh, his interview with Jonathan Kinchin, please check that out at in the money media. Um, it's a fantastic interview. It's two hours, but it's like, it, there's not a dull second and we're going to actually yeah. have Paul on in the next few weeks. So hopefully, uh, with something approaching that would be cool. Uh, well, I'll, I'll be listening to that episode. You can, yeah. You can I can't wait me. to talk. Can, can't wait can to talk me to in me. for that one. I, you know, I'm very, I'm very envious of those guys, Duke and Paul, not because, you know, but obviously they're, they're hugely successful and, but I, but I don't envy that. I, I, I'm, I respect, you know, I respect them for that because, uh, you know, I know how hard that they have to work to, to make that happen because, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in those uh, trenches every day too. And I know, I know what it takes, but I envy those guys for, for having a brother that you could handicap with and talk races over with and, you know, maybe cry on his shoulder a little bit when things go bad and celebrate when things go good. Um, you know, that has to be a fantastic situation. And I it's, really envy that. It's iron sharpens iron because, you know, you, those guys have some amazing stories of, oh, of losing uh, a million on a, on a, you know, 5K <laughs> claimer at Penn. That'll yeah. hurt. That'll hurt. Yeah, I, yeah I, I, I thought I was a degenerate, but uh, <laughs> they, they, Duke, Duke made me sound like a Boy Scout. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, wrapping up the talk on Churchill real quick, it, you're, you're a Kentucky man. Uh, what, what are some of the trainers that, you know, historically that you've noticed that do well? Maybe some of the jockeys that when we're handicapping and we're, we're trying to decide, you know, do we like this horse? And and we see a certain jock or two that maybe we we bump up a point, you know, or maybe give them a little edge. Um, trainers, <clears throat> it's you know that's gotten tough at Churchill. Al, not for whatever reason, uh, the guys that I used to lean on, like uh, you know Dale Romans, I was always uh, on Dale Romans when you know when they opened the gates at Churchill. Uh, and, and, you know, he still has a lot of success there, but you know, it's, it's not like it used to be. It seemed like, you know, I, I don't, 
you know, I'm not speaking for him, but I, I, it, it seemed like he, he pointed for that. And, um, I, you know, I always did well bumping his horses up when, when Churchill started, but it, you know, it, those trainers will present themselves early in the meet. Um, if you'll watch the first couple of days at opening weekend, by the time opening weekend's over, you'll, you'll probably be able to look at the results and, and not just the winners, but the horses that were prices that ran well or a horse that had a bad trip that, that maybe should have won that didn't. Uh, you'll see a trainer that had, you know, two or three live horses show up that opening weekend. And, you know, that's, uh, that's the, that's the direction to, to go because, uh, at, at Churchill, it seems like there's, there's guys that, that are hot like that almost every meet. And when I try to predict it ahead of times lately, I, I'm not very good at it, even though I'm, you know, I've watched every Churchill race for the last 30 years, but uh, it, it just seems like it, it, there's more variance in that than there used to be. Uh, when it comes to jockeys, <clears throat> I give you the leading rider. That's really a, a, a useful observation for you. But I'm, I'm going to say Corey Lannery just because even though he's the leading rider, he's, he's such a, uh, he's such a, uh, tactical, smart rider, good decision-making rider, especially at Churchill. He's just different at Churchill. Calvin Burrell in his heyday was the same way. Those guys, I, you know, I don't know what it is, but they, you know, they're a different rider on that, on that oval. Um, so Lannery, even though, well, Mike, I can't get any value. He's a leading rider. Um, he, he will, you know, he'll win a lot of races, but he will, he'll help you hit a lot of exactas, a lot of trifectas. Uh, when he's on the best horse and you're looking for a, a single in the picks, I love to see him on a horse. And if it's, if he's going to be eight to five, so be it. But if I think the horse is the best, it's a rare thing when Lannery gets me beat on the best horse. So at Churchill. Um, so uh, I, that's the direction I would go there. There are, uh, uh, you know, the, the rest of the, of the colony, I, you know, they're going to be new guys there. They're going to be big names there. Uh, you know, I think that'll just have to play itself out and see see who's on their game and who's not, but uh, you can, you can almost count on Lannery getting his share. Does, um, you know, in this just came to me, the proximity to Indiana Downs, uh, Indiana Grand, it, oh. which is actually getting much better. The racing there is getting wildly uh, competitive out there. You've got fairgrounds uh, horses coming in. Delta Downs horses coming in. Um, we're going to see Florida horses coming in. Do you, his, uh, in the past, has there been a, a specific track maybe horses are shipping in from that tend to maybe produce, uh, you know, overrun their odds maybe? 
you know, you mentioned Indiana Downs. It, it's a, it's been a good feeder track for Churchill. Um, it, I like it, especially when, uh, when it's a little deeper there at Indiana. Um, you know, sometimes they'll, that thing will get really fast and they'll be, they'll be running nine and change all day up there. And, and uh, I don't know that that, when it gets like when it gets that hard and fast, I don't know if Indiana is as good a conditioning track. But um, when they're running the average times at uh, Indiana and the track's just a little deeper, uh, those horses have done very well shipping into Churchill. Um, I would uh, I would say that would probably be my favorite my favorite feeder track uh, coming into Churchill. I'm not saying class wise, you know you. Uh, stakes horses, you're probably not, your Indiana shippers may be up against it. But uh, when you're talking overall racing and your, especially your lower level races, uh, the Indiana horses will produce a lot of prices. You know, and I think that's great information, especially uh, taking some of these tips that you've given uh, as, as we start this meet. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. And, uh, you know, bearing with the technical difficulties, I think we sounded great. Uh, we'll find out from racing Twitter shortly. <laughs> um, if people are interested in, in your thoughts, you do give them at Silk1900 on Twitter. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm a little sometimey, as an old groom used to say around the track when I was <laughs> on the track. Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't put out a whole lot. I get busy and I have a, something I, you know, I, I, I think about, I think about Twitter a lot. If someone could just like link your mind up, your thoughts into posts, uh, I would be on Twitter a lot, but, uh, I, you know, I actually just don't get the, uh, get the fingers and the thumb. Well, it's no thumbs with me. It's all fingers. So, uh, well, give, I don't give Elon Musk a couple of years. He'll get you there. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like uh, Elon, uh, he keeps it, he keeps it happening out there. I, uh, he's never a dull moment with Elon. Just you know, as long as you're not long Tesla when he when he unloads it, you're you're all right. <laughs> um, but yeah, at Silk nineteen hundred, check out Betting with an Edge. Uh, P- Peter Thomas Foreman tell at Looms Boldly on Twitter. I know he has some copies available still. Um, you know, and I can't thank you again uh, for coming on. Coming on, and it's been fun talking to you. We, I, I consider you, you know, a phone friend now. Um, so, <laughs> Same here. So, uh, you know, hopefully going forward again, we can give you uh, an avenue as as the days come by that uh, maybe you know you come on and and you got you got a bone you want to pick, or or we can just <laughs> bug you with some horse racing questions, but. Uh, can't wait till the next time we get to chat again. And uh, thank you for everything again, Mike. Well, I've enjoyed it too, Alan. And uh, uh, best of luck with the show. And uh, I'll be uh, eagerly awaiting uh, Paul's appearance. Absolutely. So uh, we will catch you next time on the Patient Stew podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>